I want to invite you to reach for your Bibles for our scripture reading this morning. We're going to be concluding our series in the book of Ruth that we've been in for the last several weeks now. And so we are concluding with Ruth chapter 4. We're going to look at the entire chapter of Ruth chapter 4 in today's passage. And, uh, and so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 4? We're going to be reading verses 1 through 22. Notice what the Word of God says to us here in Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, oh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair My own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, You are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your, mother, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salam. Salam fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would focus our hearts and minds for the next few minutes on your word, the truth, and the principles that you have for us here. May it change our lives, may it impact us for not only today and next week, but really for all eternity. Use me as I speak this morning in your name we pray. Amen. Many, many years ago, the Disney movie Aladdin came out. If you have kids that are now teenagers, I'm sure you saw it probably too many times. And uh, if you saw the movie, then you know Aladdin is trapped in the cave of wonders when he finds a golden lamp. He rubs it to wipe off the dust, and out of it comes this genie. And the genie quickly befriends Aladdin. And because he's a genie, he's bound to give Aladdin, as you know, three wishes. Aladdin uses his first wish to get out of the cave. He uses his second wish to make himself into a prince so that he can woo Prince Jasmine. He is about to use his third wish when the magic lamp is stolen by Jafar. And after a series of surprising twists and turns in the movie, Aladdin finally recovers the golden lamp and uses his third wish to free Genie who lives with Aladdin in the palace happily ever after, right? Just like a Disney movie. Now, can you imagine for a moment, though, of finding a golden lamp with a genie inside? Let's say you find it this afternoon. Wow. At one point in the story, the genie actually describes to Aladdin the concept of what it's like to have a genie. All the power of the universe in a little bitty lamp. Imagine having that. All the power of the universe in a little bitty lamp that you rub and you make it do whatever you want. And I think that's what we all kind of wish for when we face disappointments in life. We would love to rub a lamp and out pops a genie who will deliver us from all our disappointments, complications, and problems in life. But the reality is we don't live in a Disney world as much as some of you wish you did. And we don't have a golden lamp with a genie inside who can deliver us from all our heartaches, problems, and complications. Instead, we are sovereignly ruled by the God of the universe. And although he is all-powerful and all-wise, he is not a genie who can be controlled by us. There's no doubt God's approach to our disappointments in life, our complications in life, It's very different from the approach we would choose for ourselves. But here's the good news. God's approach to our disappointments is far superior to any genie. This is what we're going to see today in chapter 4 here. In fact, chapter 4 climaxes the whole main lesson of the book of Ruth. And it's this. Notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. And that is God will deliver His people from disappointment. God will do that for His people, but He will do so in the most surprising ways. Now, 
I love to watch a good movie, even read a good book. And all the best movies and best novels are filled with surprises in the plot line. That's what keeps our attention. The plot twists and turns this way and that way. And we are never quite sure where the storyline is going next. Last week in Ruth chapter 3, we saw a twist worthy of a Jason Bourne movie when Ruth shockingly learned that there was another kinsman redeemer closer than Boaz. In one sense, this meant that Ruth's fundamental need for rest and security was already resolved. One way or another, Ruth would be taken care of through her marriage to this kinsman redeemer. Yet in another sense, we are still in suspense about Ruth's future. Would Ruth end up married to Boaz or to this mysterious stranger who has no name? And even though we haven't met this man, we instinctively feel that he can't possibly be the right man for Ruth to marry. So how will the story of Ruth end? Who will she marry? And what about Naomi, her mother-in-law? What will happen to her? Well, these questions are all answered here in chapter 4. And what we see is the best is yet to come. Why? Because God will deliver his people from disappointment, but he will do it in the most surprising of ways. So let's unpack this a little bit. What I want you to see, first of all, is God will surprise us with his methods. He will surprise us with the methods he uses to deliver his people. Now, the life of God's people is not always an interstate through the plains of Kansas. If you have driven I-70 from Kansas City to Denver, Colorado, then you understand it is a straight line. It does not curve to the left or to the right. It goes straight and you get there quickly. Well, if you drive over the speed limit, you get there quickly. It's more like the state road through the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. There are slippery curves. There are hairpin turns. There are even rock slides and sudden storms that impede your progress and make your travel difficult. But all along this hazardous twisted road that doesn't yet see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that simply read the best is yet to come. And what we learn is that God's methods are often very different than the methods we would choose to deliver us from our own disappointments. In fact, here's the principle we learn from the book of Ruth. Is that God may use a series of zigzags, even setbacks, to deliver us rather than a straight line. The story of Ruth is a series of zigzags and even setbacks, rather than a straight line to redemption. If you remember in chapter 1, Naomi and her husband and two sons moved to Moab from Bethlehem in search of food in the midst of a famine. And then Naomi's husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women, and ten years later, her two sons die, leaving behind three grieving Widows, And even though Ruth stays with her mother-in-law, chapter 1 ends with Naomi's bitter complaint. She exclaims, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back now to Bethlehem empty. The Almighty had dealt very bitterly with me. 
And then in chapter 2, we see that Naomi is all of a sudden filled with some new hope because Boaz appears on the scene as a possible husband for Ruth. But Boaz doesn't propose to Ruth. He doesn't make any moves. At least that's the way it seems at first. And so the chapter closes brimming with hope, but also with this great uncertainty about how all of this is going to work out. Which brings us to chapter 3, where Naomi and Ruth would make this bold and risky move in the middle of the night. Ruth goes to Boaz at the threshing floor and basically proposes marriage to him. But right when Ruth's widowhood seems to be resolved in a beautiful story, a Rocky Mountain boulder rolls out onto the road of Ruth's life. There's another man who has first rights to marry Ruth. And so chapter 3 ends again in suspense of another setback. And again, we are left wondering, will God deliver Ruth and Naomi from their disappointments? Now, as chapter 4 opens, we see that Boaz wasted no time in seeking a resolution on Ruth's behalf. It says in verses 1 through 2, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, why are they sitting at down doing business like this? Because that's what you did in that day. In fact, the city gate was the place in that day where official meetings took place and where legal business was transacted. And so Boaz is going to the city gate. He is calling that no-name redeemer to come and have a seat. He's also gathering ten elders of the city to come and have a seat as well so they can resolve the situation. It was there Boaz encountered this man. And he summons him. And Boaz lays out the situation in verses 3 through 4 when he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, he says, then go for it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that way I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And to our shock, even to our dismay, this other relative says at the end of verse 4, oh, I'll, I'll redeem it. And we're like, what? The story can't end that way. Let's be honest. Who wants that guy to redeem it? No one does. We want Boaz to redeem the land. We want Boaz to marry Ruth. And so again, there seems to be this setback. And the irony of this setback is that it's being caused by, get this, good. Not evil. Good. This guy is only doing his duty. He's doing something good here. And so, yes, sometimes the Rocky Mountain Road is all clogged up, not with boulders, but with good workmen just doing their duty. And, yes, they're backing up traffic, and you're having to wait patiently. You're traveling five miles an hour. You've come to a complete stop at times. But it's all for good. This means that sometimes our disappointments are not only caused by sin, but also by ill-timed goodness. And that's when we have to remember, God will deliver his people from disappointments, but he will do so in the most surprising ways. 
And so just when we're about to say, stop the story, don't let this guy marry Ruth, Boaz surprises him with this tiny detail in verse 5. Oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And then to our relief, this man suddenly changes his mind. He says in verse 6, Oh, I cannot then redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. You take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so now we're cheering as Boaz gets through this zigzag pass on the Rocky Mountains, and he coasts downhill to the wedding feast with Ruth on his arm. But there's still a storm brewing overhead. Ruth is still barren, or at least she seems to be. Because back in chapter 1 of verse 4, we are told that Ruth has been married 10 years to Malin, and there were no children. And so even now, the suspense of the story is not quite over. Can you see why I said that God will often use a series of zigzags to deliver us instead of a straight line? Life is one curve after another. Life is rarely a straight line from point A to point B to point C. That's often not how we move in God's plan and in the journey of life. The story of Ruth teaches us that the best is yet to come, but it often comes through zigzags, not a straight line. We finally see Ruth's deliverance here in verse 13, though, when it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. You see, the reason the book of Ruth was written is to help us see some of the signposts of God's grace at work in our lives. And to help us trust God's grace, even when the storms of disappointment are so thick that we can't see the road, let alone the signs on the side of the road. You ever been in a snowstorm? You can barely see 100 yards in front of you, let alone some of the signs you're passing by. You're driving 20 miles an hour. That is much the way life is. And so let's remind ourselves that it was God who acted to turn each setback into a stepping stone of joy. And it is God in our bitter disappointments who is seeking to accomplish his good in our lives, ultimately for his glory. Now, some of the signposts along the book of Ruth here are, one, here we see the gift of Ruth. That is a gift of God's grace, the very gift of Ruth. When Naomi's whole life seemed to collapse in Moab, it was God who gave Ruth to Naomi. In Ruth 1, verse 16, we learn that the root of Ruth's commitment to Naomi is Ruth's commitment to God. God had won Ruth's allegiance to Moab, and so it was God that Naomi owed the love of her daughter-in-law. Ruth 2.12 says that when Ruth came to Bethlehem with Naomi, she was coming to take refuge under the wings of God. Therefore, it is owing to God that Ruth left her family and home to follow Naomi. 
All along, it was God who was turning Naomi's setback into joy, even when she was oblivious to his grace at work in her life. And so the first signpost we see of God's grace at work is in Ruth herself. The second signpost we see is the very preservation of Boaz. Naomi gives the impression in chapter 1 that there's absolutely no hope that Ruth could remarry and raise up children to continue the family line. But all the while, what is God doing behind the scenes? He's actually providing and even preserving a wealthy, godly man named Boaz to do just that. And the reason we know this, what God's doing, is that Naomi admits it in chapter 2, verse 20, when she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi recognizes that behind this accidental meeting of Ruth and Boaz in the field, the kindness of God was not forsaken. He, God, had not forsaken Naomi. And then the third signpost of God's grace at work we see is actually here in verse chapter 4, the conception of Ruth's son. Who was it that gave a baby to the barren womb of Ruth? It was a miracle. This is God's working. This is God's doing. And what's interesting is that the townspeople pray for Boaz and Ruth. You see, they know that Ruth was married for 10 years without a child. And they remember Rachel previously in their history, whose womb the Lord had opened. And so now they pray that God will make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, who had 12 sons between them. And so the author for us is making it clear Who caused this child to be conceived when it says in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, who gave conception? It says the Lord did. And she bore a son. And so we see again and again that it was God at work in the bitter setbacks of Naomi. When she lost her husband and sons, God gave her Ruth. When she could think of no kinsman to raise up a child for the family name, God gave her Boaz. And when Ruth married Boaz, God gave the child. And so the main lesson of Ruth is seen in the very life of Naomi here. God will deliver his people from disappointment, but he will do so in the most surprising of ways. So as Naomi learned, yes, the best is yet to come. The best is always yet to come with God. But God will surprise us with his methods. He often uses zigzags and even setbacks instead of a straight line. The second truth we learn in the book of Ruth is God will surprise us with his timing. With his timing. Have you noticed in the book of Ruth that everything happens in God's timing? Nothing seems to happen quickly here in this book. There are no quick fixes to disappointments and complications. And yet, what we learn is that God's timing is always perfect and it's always on time. And so here's the principle to take away. God may act slowly to deliver us rather than speedily. This principle is seen most clearly 
in the life of Naomi when Ruth finally gives birth to a son. I think that's one of the main reasons why the focus is on Naomi here in this passage instead of on Ruth and Boaz in verses 14 through 17. Notice again what it says. Look at verses 14. It says, Then the women said to Naomi. Now that's interesting. They're not saying this to Ruth, who's the one actually giving birth. No, they're saying this to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to Him. One pastor tells the following story how a a grubby-looking man came bounding into the church office one day looking for some help, looking for a handout. And and so he asked him what his name is, and he replied, Hard Times. That's my name, Hard Times. Well, Naomi's name at the very beginning of the book here was Hard Times. I mean, you could call her Hard Times Naomi, and that's the way the author of the book wanted us to meet her. Because the lesson of the book is that God will deliver his people from, quote, hard times. But he may do it slowly instead of speedily. You see, the story begins with Naomi's loss. She lost a husband and two sons. But it ends with Naomi's gain. It begins with Naomi's emptiness, but it ends with her fullness. It begins with the death of her sons, but it ends with the birth of another son. But for whom? Look what the women said in verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi. Not to Ruth, but to Naomi. Why? To show that it was not true what Naomi had said earlier in the story, that the Lord had brought her back empty from Moab. And so no wonder, verse 16 says, that Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This was a clear sign that finally, after many years, that Naomi's emptiness had now been replaced by fullness through God's grace. And if we could just learn to wait on the Lord, and to trust in God, all our complaints against God would prove untrue. Let me just throw out two observations about God's timing in life. First of all, God may delay deliverance. In fact, He often does. What we want so much when we're in the middle of a complication, a problem, a disappointment, whatever you're dealing with right now, we want it resolved quickly. We want it resolved in our timeline. And God simply doesn't work on our timeline. God often delays his deliverance. And when he does, our response to that is to trust him and wait upon him. I love how the New Living Translation paraphrases verse 17 of Ruth chapter 4. It says, The neighbor women said to Naomi, Now at last, Naomi has a son again. At last, God has delivered Naomi from her disappointment that she experienced many years earlier in life. Talking about waiting on God for deliverance, and yet oftentimes waiting is what is best for us. 
Why? Well, because of the second observation. Because God wants to produce something in you. And that is endurance, perseverance. In the only way, maybe not the only way, but the greatest way that God can achieve that in your life is through waiting, especially during the midst of disappointment. Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance. And that endurance produces character, and that character, Paul says, produces hope. Not hope in us, but hope in God. And so there's this chain effect that happens when we trust in the Lord and wait on the Lord, especially in the midst of complications or disappointment. Waiting on God forces us to depend on God, often like we never would when we don't have to necessarily wait on Him. And it produces endurance in us. So yes, God will deliver His people from disappointment. Have you read the end of the book of the Bible? We know what, how the story ends, right? We, the story of redemption, we know how it ends. And so we know that God will deliver us. We know the best is yet to come. But He will surprise us with His timing. He may act slowly rather than speedily. The last truth we learn in the book of Ruth is this, number three. God will surprise us with His perspective. With His perspective. Again, I'm aging myself here a little bit because I'm throwing out movies that are rather old, but how many of you saw the movie Ants? Anybody? Ants? And then another animated movie. Uh, most of the action in the movie follows the life of this neurotic worker ant in his quest to win the love of a prince's ant. But as the movie ends, the camera pans out to show the audience that everything in the movie has been taking place where? In Central Park, in the heart of New York City. And thus, we are invited to consider the parallels between the lies of the ants in the movie and the lies of the real people walking all around them. And in the same way, the genealogy here at the end of the book of Ruth serves the same function. We're invited now to consider, to step back and consider the much bigger, grander, greater purpose of God in our own lives. In other words, we're invited to step away from the mirror, so to speak, because we are so concerned with ourselves, we think the world revolves around me, myself, and I, and my problems. And now the, at the end of the story, we're invited to step back and say, you know what, there's much greater purposes involved here than just my life. That God is working to achieve. You see, if this story of Ruth just ended in the little town of Bethlehem with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, we would all walk away feeling good that Naomi had finally been delivered from her disappointment. 
But the author doesn't end the story there. He takes us beyond the simple story of boy meets girl and shows us the greater, grander, bigger purpose of God. And the author author does this at the end of verse 17 when it says they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now all of a sudden, if you know your history a little bit, we realize that all along something far greater has been in the making in the very story of Ruth than we could ever imagine. Because right now our minds ought to be blown away by the purpose of God here. Because the purpose of God is about the redemption of mankind, not just my personal redemption of my problems or disappointments. You see, God was not only plotting for the, yes, the immediate comfort and blessing of a few Jews in this little town of Bethlehem, but God was preparing for the coming of Israel's greatest king, David. And the name David carries with it the hope of the Messiah for the world, which means there is hope for us now beyond the cute baby and happy grandmother. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the final principle in the book of Ruth. God always has his ultimate purpose in view rather than our immediate comforts. Now that's a hard principle to embrace. Would you agree with that? That's a hard one to embrace. And yet it's true. So what what is God's ultimate purpose here? Well, it's to redeem us from our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. Is God concerned about your immediate needs in life? Is God concerned about your disappointment? Is God concerned about your complication that you're dealing with, that you're facing, that you're enduring? Yes. Yes. But please know that God is more concerned about your eternal need of salvation and the redemption of the world. This is why God sent his son Jesus Christ to be born. It's why Jesus Christ died on the cross and then rose again three days later. So that we might redeem from our sins. So that we might live for God and for his glory through our lives, through the handling of of our disappointments and complications so that we might present a picture and be a testimony of God's grace working of our life and be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our emptiness might be replaced with the fullness of abundant and everlasting life that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so this whole series on the book of Ruth has been about finding hope in a disappointing world, in a fallen, sinful world. And so as we conclude, let's answer the question one last time. How do we find that kind of hope? Not just temporary hope. Not just a moment of hope that kind of transports us out of our disappointment, out of our problems, knowing that when we wake up tomorrow, we're right back in it. But a greater hope than that. A hope that that supports us, transcends us in the middle of our complications and disappointments. How do we find that kind of hope? It's right here. God will deliver us, but we must turn to him. 
We must turn to him and we must trust him and then look for the surprising ways that he works. And I hope, no pun intended, you've learned through this series that God is always, always working, even when it appears that he's not. And so turn to him. Turn to him and trust him and look for the surprising ways that he is working in your life. You know, when we have other friends, family members who are Christ followers going through issues in life, dealing with battles in life, complications, disappointments, you, whatever you want to call it. And our heart goes out to them, and we may find ourselves the opportunity, may even seek out the opportunity to, to try to encourage them, talk with them. I think one of the greatest ways we can do that is to help them see how God is still working in their life. Because when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see that, is it not? And so one of the things we can do for one another is to, not in a, uh, in a loving way, point out and show them, hey, here's, here's some of the ways God is still evident in your life, how he's still working in your life. And it may, be the, some of, it may be something small, and yet it's tangible. And to remind them, yes, sometimes God's goodness and grace, it is so obvious that we can't miss it. And other times it seems we can't find it at all. But no matter what, God is always at work in our lives. He may surprise you with his methods. He may surprise you with his timing. And he may even surprise you with his perspective of it all. But God will deliver us in disappointing times if, if we will turn to him and trust him and lean on him, depend on him, and persevere with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer whom you have provided to rescue us from our sins. Help us to see through the story of Ruth that you care for us and that you are always working for our good and your glory. Help us even now to turn to you for hope in this disappointing fallen world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that concludes the story of Ruth. Four chapters long. Great little book. I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope you have benefited from it. I hope you have been encouraged by it. You may be wondering what's going on next. Well, next Sunday, Pastor Chris will be preaching because I will be in Silent Springs, Arkansas for my son's, I won't say wedding because he's already married, But due to COVID, as you know, everything's turned upside down. So it's really the celebration of their marriage and the reception of their marriage has taken place down there. And so we will be down there. And then we will race home as a family so that we can be part of Jack's graduation. Lord knows we wanted all this to happen on the same weekend. And it is. So, But nonetheless, we're excited. So I will be out of town, gone next Sunday. Pastor Chris will be preaching during the 9.30 service and the 11 a.m. service. So I hope you will return. And in the meantime, again, I want to encourage you to keep on giving so that we can keep on with the mission here at LifeBridge of bridging the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to those of you who are giving, thank you so, so much. 
for your faithfulness, your generosity, either giving online or in person. In fact, if you come and want to give in person, the offering box is at the back of the auditorium there. Just drop it in there on your way out, and uh, we appreciate that so very, very much. And if you are in need, uh, food assistance or financial assistance, reach out to us. We're here to serve you. Even if you're a longtime member and you've never asked for help before, there is no shame in it. Reach out to us. Uh, maybe you know somebody who would be in need of financial assistance or food assistance. Encourage them to reach out to our, our church office as well. And so, again, uh, may you have a blessed week. Stay strong in the Lord. And we'll see, I will see you in two weeks. But I hope you'll be back here 